Welcome to the eighth episode of the New Models Podcast and our second episode from the Athens Biennale AB6, also known as Anti. This interview is with artist Ed Fornielis, whose video, The Cell, is shown in the Athens Biennale and follows a live action role-playing game, or LARP, he documented. The LARP Ed created attempts to explore what happens in hierarchical and hyper-masculine closed environments. I'm Lil Internet, joined by New Models co-founder Carly Busta and artist Daniel Keller. Let's get right into it. So well, I'll just give you the premise, which yeah. is a kind of fictionalized scenario of a alt-right gamer group that's sort of coming together. And um, we role-played and used a lot of techniques from LARP to sort of play out a scenario. It was a group of 10 people and we existed within an installation of 10 days. And kind of the characters were brought there by the dream to sort of self-betterment, I suppose, like to better themselves. And we used a lot of um, references from 4chan and other uh, forms and sites and kind of conversations about um, masculinity and sort of identity and how I don't know it is a really hard thing to talk about because yeah. it, we're talking about like male identity and we're talking about like really kind of abhorrent community like communities that can perform themselves in quite like dark ways right and like trying to think about what brought them to those places and like why they sort of got to those, made those decisions and then try to sort of relate to that, which is really hard to do. Cause like, I don't really have many, much empathy for their position, but I think a degree of critical empathy is required if we're to sort of unpack this thing. Yeah. And you started thinking about this in the context of like the Me Too 2018, the toxic masculinity, men's rights, this environment, or what was like the different references that would have fed into you thinking about this work? Because presumably you were thinking about it even like before. Yeah, so it's a huge, there's like many different sort of starting points. There's like a personal one for me, which and I suppose from personal perspective, I, I like for school, for instance, was quite like a, like a violent place to be and um, inhabiting these kind of hierarchical patriarchal structures I found to be like I just was just defeated by it and so after that and kind of you know art school is the, the total evasion of that almost is trying to like move yourself away from it as much as possible in the last few years I've been reading a lot of like bell hooks and kind of other kind of writers that sort of talk on the subject and probably more from like a feminist angle and so just like it's uh it is it is just a like actually a genuinely like hard thing to, uh, to sort of uh, unpack or to like talk about I mean I, I watched uh not all of it but some of the film I mean, I guess you say it is like a LARP, it is like role-playing, but I kept getting these sort of Stanford prison experiment vibes where maybe people started getting lost in the characters or people... I mean, was there a clear line of their real feelings and what they were supposed to act? Or what was your insight into that divide? Yeah, so it's, that's a really, really interesting question. So like the value I find of role-playing in general is to be able to move from an immersive state where you're fully enacting and, and embodying a position or character, and then you have a reflective state afterwards, which is normally sort of embodied through use of like debriefing sessions where you talk about your experiences and you sort of unpack everything that you've just been through. And, and that movement and that shift is is extremely powerful. And um, and so that's like a very common thing in LARP is that you, yeah, you have this like critical format um, and there are lots of safety mechanisms that go within that as well. So it did become quite a violent place, but it was more aesthetically violent than actually violent. So there were sort of mechanics for engaging conflict, for starting fights, for reconciling conflicts and sort of move your way up and down this hierarchy. And the whole system sort of premised on this defining principle that you should always have somebody lower than yourself, which is kind of makes the entire environment very precarious. 
And then you're asking about structure. So we had one point at the end of the second day, which was sort of a murder-suicide, which was based on some recent events that have happened in America where a not-white character, a not-white group sort of turned on themselves. And we use this as a sort of symbolic shift, as it were. So um, after that point, everybody's dead, essentially. There's like every, every character dies. And then the second half of the performance is used to sort of unpack or like to sort of process the traumas from the beginning. I know it gets, it gets complicated because also all of the people who are participating, there are people who've been in LARP, for a long time, there are people from the acting community. They're just they were young gamers, for instance. Um, so everybody was bringing something different to this thing. Can you speak for a second about what the viewer sees on the screen? So for those who are listening, they can sort of have an image of what the what the piece is like, the duration, the aesthetics of it, like the. Yeah, so it's uh, 55 minutes long. We had uh, body cameras on everybody. So we had like 10 body cameras and we had uh, eight CCTV cameras embedded within the installation. So everybody was being watched constantly. Um, The premise or the kind of conceit within that, we ended up sort of creating this idea that they were producing a sort of training video to sort of, or a media package that would sort of spread their message beyond their death. Was there a laser pointer on every camera so they could tell where it was pointed or? Exactly, so everybody had a body camera strapped to their chest and they had a laser pointer. So you could always tell sort of, everybody was essentially filming their own experiences and often you could use this laser to show support for somebody or quite aggressively kind of like, when the entire group are focusing on one person, suddenly they have all these laser sights on their face or something like that. And then the the entire installation as well, I should say something maybe about that, was kind of set within the apartment of the the lead character, the sort of uh, Sam person. And he is so kind of a dark, dingy gamer den. But within that, we had spaces for relaxing, spaces for fighting. It was kind of each zone had its own sort of utility to it. A lot of the like iconography and, and posters on the wall, and I mean, you even had like a I, uh, IRL Wojak character in the <laughs> yeah. uh, in the apartment. I mean, it was very much called from you know, like, I guess you know, Chan culture, and some would say all, sort of all uh, alt right memetics. Was there anything in the way you set up this model that was maybe speculative of how uh, these sorts of groups might pan out if they were to organize? in reality in real life or in some sort of communal sense? Uh, yes, to a degree. Like, uh, it is definitely speculative. There are uh, a few things that have happened that point to this becoming an, an actuality, which is sort of slightly terrifying. But I think more, the, you know, the, the main point was to, to really try to get the essence and the core of the investigation, which was how masculinity is currently being framed at the moment, especially within, like, Chan groups. You know, people like Jordan Peterson have become very popular, as well as much more aggressive group of thinkers who are sort of pushing a very specific type of male identity. Such as? Well, one that is returning back to sort of patriarchal, really traditional values and self-betterment. And there's the sort of uh, Chad Virgin meme, for instance, which is quite an interesting one where... um, (laughs) It's a great format, yeah. (laughs) It is a great format, yeah. I wonder a little bit um, about, like, your personal engagement with this. Like, how did you start to become involved in it? Is it something that has grown out kind of organically from, like, your own presence online or your own personal interest? Or how did you start working with this material? Well, I suppose I've been a lurker on Chan for since a, a long time and I've just been and followed it and been interested in it. and obviously the the shift that's happened within that space going from being a very left-wing space to a very 
radically right-wing space has been yeah. been interesting to observe and to try to unpick and to see how it has rippled and it's always been a place to a mimetic fountain that has rippled into other spaces. You mentioned before um, the character Wojak, and I think Wojak's a really interesting phenomenon because his thing is he's the feels guy, so he's he's emotional. And often within these ideas of masculinity, the idea of feeling is actually considered like abhorrent or it's a negative thing, uh, something to sort of be pushed pushed away. Which is why in the in the cell uh, in the work he's brought to the fore. Like I think that he's actually a really useful meme that embodies their weakness. And I think that that can be perhaps reframed as a strength potentially. I think it's interesting because that was not the case uh, in the beginning with Wojak. It was very much like maybe, you know, an alternate mood of Pepe, but they were like coexisting kind of as like, I know different reactions to incel dumb, but this was you know like maybe four years ago or something like that, and I don't think that dichotomy really emerged until maybe 2016. I remember seeing just like Bernie Sanders feel Trump thing, and that was right. like that uh -huh. was very clearly explicated then. Um, but yeah, no, I think it, it, the evolution of these memes, it's it's I mean that I think is just alone really interesting um, how much they can be changed and hijacked and like ruined and. Memes Forever. are kind of like avatars for the collective unconscious, like who needs to desublimate certain human feelings or experiences right. or modes. In, in a way, like this, the Chan culture started moving towards, I guess, this more radical and right-wing space and becoming more, dis I guess, disillusioned and angry once they felt like they lost control of the internet in a way, when they used to sort of be the lords of it. And they used to also, I mean, I also remember when, you know, anybody who would vlog or sort of honestly live journal as their IRL name or self was just being invited to be doxxed or harassed. In a way, they were really tried to protect the internet from ever becoming this mirror uh, of, of reality and I guess once they feel like they lost their domain and and feel like they really had no no other place to to get a sense of power I, I don't know tracing the transition from 4chan from a leftist space of Occupy to the kind of right-wing hate machine it's known as now. Uh, do you have a, Do you have your own idea of why that transition happened? Well, I'd say that the defining principle of the space is like an edgelord logic, like you can always go further. So if you have that, the, the radical left or whatever you want to call it, like, you know, anonymous translates very, it moves very easily to um, to the far right because the, the mimetic language they use is a force field that's like a defense against the outside world. And like, if you use a swastika or, you know, if you use something that is not, acceptable in mainstream space it becomes uh, a weapon or a shield and I think it will move again and it will keep moving like for instance there's a case of a group where one of them became basically like into Islam and as a way of like just trying to sort of push it's like the Hulabek kind of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I mean, Peterson is also, in his own way, edgelord, like if you were to define it. I mean, he's so trad, he's what, edge. What, can we define edgelord, actually? Because I am I struggle to do it myself. I, I mean, don't know. it's used really, really casually, and I think I, I'm using it like it's on high rotation in my vocabulary. Well, same, of course. I mean, I, mean, I think <laughs> it's... I think I must, yeah, described as one. So, I mean, right. you, can, you can reverse engineer it from <laughs> right. there. I mean, <laughs> and if anything, I mean, the, the AB6, Athens Biennale 6, is like the edgelord by any Very much I mean, so. if you look through their catalog, it's like every single 
single one. I mean, okay, basically to give listeners a picture, a very graphic picture, we exit the press conference this morning at like oh 1 p.m. and we're promised like coffee and cookies. We cross the hallway and there's like what looks like like Hitler's like Munich Putsch or something. Like, but it's actually like the like Deutsche Affel. Blah, blah, blah. But they're German, right? No, They were German and Aryan. And I got to say, like, it was a little bit tricky. I was like, whoa, why? why?" I mean, mean, I also did not feel like engaging. If that's edgelord, that was beyond the edge that I'm interested in actually exploring. So I was like, I roll, uh, thanks. That's jumping the the shark edge or whatever. Definitely. Definitely jumping the shark edge. Okay, so definition of edgelord. I mean, I think in these times that Julian, like, chime in here because you're good at succinct one-liners. But, like, I would say it is, like, standing on the limit of what is still acceptable within a certain culture like while like well it's opening it's the place of the it's the position of opening the overton window yeah, or it's like hanging out uh, on the like windowsill yeah it's like, that's it yeah. it's like smoking a cigarette yeah, it's like smoking out smoking, smoking, smoking overton window, so. a, like yeah usually why you would call someone an edgelord though is that you know that they do it because they enjoy it. It's not that that's right, the most effective way component. to. It's not that it's the most effective way to to get across the message or that they're trying to. It's that they enjoy the the reaction. Edge lord. I mean, to tie this to LARPing. I mean, edge lord is doing something quote quote dangerous in a space that's actually safe, right? So it's playing playing out a fantasy in a space that actually is controlled and has a decompression zone. I mean, but. I, I don't know. It's like free breathalyzer test T-shirt with an arrow pointing down to your dick. Like that's those are made for the edge lord market. No, like, that's just tacky. Yeah, I think that's I, made for like, know, like the. I think you're talking about City trolls Maryland and rebels market. and like tacky. Yeah. Like, but I don't think this is edge lord. Edge lord is also it is about a political positions. It's about like what is barely tenable as a political position. And I yeah. do. I don't think it's just. For the lulls, that's trolling. I don't right. know. I think it is like there is some intent there. You are making people react. You're like you're not an edge hi- surf. You're an edge lord, and you're hijacking the attention economy to get. Yeah, I don't. I think it is proven over and over again to be effective. Trump is an edge lord. I mean, he's that's past so that, true, but actually. his rhetoric is edge lordy. Um, you know, and I think like. Yeah, it's just constantly pushing what is the bounds, but, but it is, towards a, a goal. Component. Towards a goal, there is a pleasure component. Oh, that's for sure. So but it's like it is a key Where isn't there pushing. a pleasure component for this? Kind well, there's sometimes of, especially for, but for like politics or for activism, well, there's a pleasure true. component. And also, one can be an edge lord, but also like in a liberal space, like those who just like say, "Hey, this is fascist," when it's not. Yeah. They're also pushing what it is to have a liberal stance to a certain limit case, and they're taking pleasure in doing that. For sure. Or, I mean, these, like, grief hipsters, for instance, that, like, kind of, yeah, have police which tragedies are okay. To, I mean, I think there's a lot of, like, pushing the Overton window in the other yeah. way that these people are doing. I believe in nothing but martyrdom and masochism with po- my political activism. <laughs> <laughs> Suffering. <laughs> Suffering. Sacrifice. Um, <laughs> adversity signaling. I just, we have to yeah. keep coming back to Anakachians. Anakachians, yeah. So, we have some brutal news for you. Sad. Yeah. Um, oh, you want to break it to them? Yes. No. Yes. <laughs> no. But yes. It's well. We have a Patreon.com. Oof. Yeah. Yes. Patreon.com backslash new models. It's true. We have a Patreon.com, but things aren't going to change. You're still going to be able to access the site, all of the podcasts, all of the special reports. There's not going to be any sort of cyber feudalist 
caste system where the top donor gets yak milk face serum from new models. <laughs> Maybe can you tell people what they will get if they join? I mean, we, we, we're thinking of it more as like uh, sort of becoming a, a partner. I mean, of course, you'll have that little Patreon community. You know, you'll kind of be our test population for all of the new ways we're going to be expanding the New Models platform. And there might be some Patreon-only special banter episodes <laughs> made available to everyone, not just the top donor. Were you saying that people have to pay for our Dart-style <laughs> cast? No, well, th- you, listen, th- apparently, according in this market, Dart-style is the only thing people pay for anyways. <laughs> I don't... Yeah. <laughs> Premium dart. So highbrows hi, hi read darts we pay for. No, that's not the main thing. The main thing is that you end up as part of our community. And as we start to explore other spaces, we'll be offering you first access to those spaces. You'll be, you'll be giving us the energy we need to grow. <laughs> oh, God. As okay. Young grow, as a young, young growing platform, need, need energy. So. Patreon.com backslash new models. Sign up if you listen. And as always... Send thoughts, criticism, feedback, tips to desk at newmodels.io. No, this was not a live action role play. (laughs) (laughs) What would happen if we joined Patreon? (laughs) Patreon.com slash newmodels. Back to the podcast. I mean, okay, so I wonder if maybe you can also, for our listeners' sake, but for my sake too, I'm curious, what were some of the parameters that you gave for the work that you made for this show? The safety stuff. The safety stuff, yeah. Okay, so just classical role-play LARP safety stuff. You have a cut. If you say cut, everything stops immediately. If you say break, everyone slows down around you and backs off slowly. And then you have another one that I made up for myself for this one is the okay symbol. It means you're okay with it, do more. Like, <laughs> I, I can go further. But it's not, it's not the... It is. Well, it's, it is <laughs> like the symbol. Okay. And, um, he is making um, a circle, yeah, an edgelord <laughs> symbol. Yeah. But, uh, but then the most important one is you are responsible for yourself. So, um, and that's something that needs to be like driven again and again and again. Say that one more time. You are responsible oh, yeah. for yourself. And, um, you know, like if, if something, if a violent scene is happening and the person, the person who's most likely to be affected by it is the person doing the violence uh, to the other person. So to make sure that like everybody's complicit and everybody's okay and everybody un- understands everybody's position and to use the other things like cut and break. Right. Interesting. In a way, it's like LARPing is not just for personal or community, like small community catharsis. It's actually this weird way of retraining our social space. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like, I don't know, we're all going through preschool again or something. But, yeah. How often do people actually use the safe words? It was used once. Okay. Wow. Uh, wow. Which means in real space, we have this, we have such a complicated, sophisticated system of signals. Eye contact, body contact, positioning, where we're communicating with each other. In the LARP community, they, they, they say reality is just bad LARP design. But yeah. <laughs> Do you think of these, uh, I'm not sure in terms of like how you summarize these LARPs that, that you put on, uh, but I, I almost wonder, I mean, do you consider them in a way perhaps like a model for homegrown sociology studies and, and that escapes the trappings of like true actual medical regulation? <laughs> uh, no, uh, no. Um, but I mean, I do think it is a, a fantastic simulation space where you can test different things and potentially 
they can be counted to the other. It's the real world. Like in roleplay, you have this thing called bleed. So um, I might bleed my own character into the character that I'm playing. Mm. It, it might work the other way that, in fact, after this performance, for instance, I was deeply affected by the character I was playing. Um, but also, I think society and structurally, hypothetically, there could be bleed out. You know, like you yeah. could test a different mode of being and it could perhaps have ripple effects. I mean, this makes you think of a couple of things. One is that in a time when people have, are less, less frequently have these very formal jobs where it's sort of like a, a we work society or whatever, um, one used to have a professional role that one would LARP in from nine to five and then come home and be like the offline person or whatever, the non-work person. And so you see this need between a kind of split, these two roles. The other thing I was going to say is that remind, I grew up in Virginia and I remember in Virginia Beach in the early 90s, these two kids were... D Dungeons and Dragons freaks and they ended up murdering some little boy because he was a cobbled they thought he was a cobbled in the forest apparently <laughs> um, what happened? They, they went to jail but it was like a huge it was like during like the D&D &D backlash like of kids kids like not being able to leave the game mm. you know and this was still just tabletop gaming so right. I think actually there was that probably had a chilling effect on uh, work like Ed's for quite some time <laughs> yeah well I mean we had the relational aesthetics in the 90s right which was like LARP as yourself in a utopic society share, share some tea share some Thai food right and then talk about how nice this experience is but so but that was like non-larping that was like larp as yourself but this is yeah not that are there any what what lessons have you learned from it anything concrete um yeah i mean this maybe sounds cheesy i, I don't know I, I learned a lot about like how those systems can generate certain kinds of behavior like if you have these i mean it really was like being back at school again like just to strip away all the cultural kind of the 4chan stuff it really kind of pushed me back to that space. I learned how to actually function in that space, which I definitely had not been able to do before. And yeah, I don't know. And I've become, sounds so cheesy, I'm more like emotionally awake now, which just <laughs> sounds like I cry now and I couldn't cry before. You're more so, Bojack. And yeah, I've, I've the feels guy, I've, I've gone into the feels guy. <laughs> I mean, there's some um, utility in that. I mean, I guess more people need to become the feels guy, maybe. Yeah, so. I think so. Are there moments, though, that genuinely scared you during these sorts of scenarios? Do you find that everyone is able to play the rules? I wonder if you've kind of encountered a certain person who's participated or something where it seemed like, the, I don't know, the role-playing had some sort of negative effects or perhaps brought out something a bit too real inside of them. I would argue the goal is to bring out something a bit too real. It felt like an incredibly safe environment. Like, um, I mean, I was waterboarded and I was very okay with that. Like, I, 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 I was able to... That is definitely Refreshing. No, I had people I trusted around me. I knew that they knew to stop the moment that something that was wrong or and that happened in various occasions for very different people it felt incredibly safe i think it did bring out a lot of stuff for people that they weren't expecting perhaps and yeah. that's kind of the point We're, i mean i guess other than personal lessons about like political prescriptions are there any like lessons for the left let's say broadly very broadly well, or the right okay, yeah. or the right sure sorry, sorry yeah. yeah let's give them let's lessons too out. yeah um yeah for sure i mean i think that just simply how male identity is being treated is is not very good on the left at all. And I think that part of this work is about male identity and like trying to separate 
bodies with penises and the idea of patriarchal thinking and I think that's really important like at the moment men really don't have very many positive identity forms on the left to go towards interesting mm -hmm. and they need to be developed or people will just keep going towards the right Mm -hmm. um, so it's very practical on that level. Like, if you have nowhere to go... No, I mean, it's true. And, like, as we know, patriarchy begins, like, with child development. So if your heroes are all following this patriarchal type and you're told as a child that those patriarchal types are also toxic, as a boy, that must be, like, a very confusing set of messages you're receiving, except for become a girl. <laughs> that's yeah, like, well, you know, right? So okay. um, that's, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's, quite, that's quite interesting. And then, I want to hear more about... Your your um, deep soy conspiracies, Carly, because I know you. <laughs> I know boy. you believe in. I know you believe in that. I mean, maybe I about inflammation, but. Um Maybe some other stuff, too. No, I mean, I don't know. I would say this in every podcast if I could, but as soon as you start turning to health things, you start to turn into so fringe that you discredit everything else, which is also true. So I'll say this once. <laughs> yeah, Very... say it. For the kids. <laughs> we declare it. <laughs> and Diabolical DM me, soy. DM me personally if you want to hear more, because I'll talk your ear off. But I actually don't really want to bring this into the context of new models. But um, it is true that when tobacco became persona non grata of the commodities market in America, they replaced a lot of those crops with soy. Soy became incredibly cheap and also subsidized. And that is the basis of most food stuff, especially in America. So like if you go to the store, like everything, fucking everything is soy-based, hydrologized soy flour. You buy wheat bread, it's 30% soy something. Like you buy fucking omega-3 capsules, which should like counteract the omega-6 in hydrologized soy oil, and they're packaged in soy, <laughs> like soy bean, whatever, <laughs> gelatin. You can't get away from it. Now we all know that like, again, this is the only time you're gonna hear me say this, but we all know also that like soy has properties which are bioidentical to estrogen, the whole soy boy phenomenon. I'm telling you as a female who has had really negative uh, effects, hormonal effects from too much soy, it does actually work on the endocrine system to like amplify those attributes. So anyway, that's my my deal. I do think that it is it is it is changing the bodies and the biochemistry of particularly Americans, but also like Venezuelans, Mexicans. There are certain countries which which rely heavily on it because it's an incredibly cheap food stuff. It's so sad being here in Athens. I was very excited about there being a surplus of olive oil. Athens. A, a country in crisis actually exports most of its olive oil. So unless you're in, in one of the richer neighborhoods, most of your oil is going to be like soy oil that has been like, you know, I don't know, even even traded with the United States. So yeah, soy is fucked up. It's the beekeeping, <laughs> it's the bee, the beekeeping model here. They, they take the honey and then replace it with sugar water. The olive oil and and the replace bee, it with yeah, soy oil. The bees survive, yeah. but the, they take the, the good stuff. But I mean, I Okay, like, okay, beyond the conspiracy theories, there's also, you know, microplastics and there's lots of xenoestrogens in there's that. There's also sure. that. That's also that. And, also true. I mean, and then... But soy is not a conspiracy theory. There are actually tons well, of totally... And like, xenoestrogens and plastics are yeah. not. No, also, no true. Uh, and co concurrently, like, sperm counts are down, with 50% in yeah. the last 70 years. Yeah. 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 yeah, it's true. One thing I found really important, though, from, from talking about all of this before, is that I realized... And I guess just in organic chemistry and nature, there's a whole lot of phyto and xenoestrogens, but not a whole lot of phyto and xenotestosterone. <laughs> and that's why it's called Mother Earth and not Father Earth. I just wanted to make 
made that point because I finally <laughs> solved that conspiracy. <laughs> Um, it is true. I did go to a healer. I know I'm really outing myself oh. as like a freak in 2012. And I was like, it was nice. And at the end, I'm like, so what about this Mayan apocalypse? Although, Julian, your theory about 2012 is also really interesting. But she said, that is the year when we turn from the world globally changes from a male energy to a female energy. There you go. It's, it's a, there we go. Really? That is what I heard. Anyway. Wait, yeah, it doesn't heard? seem like that happened. Happened yet? I don't know. Maybe chaos. Oh, Peterson, right. Peterson. Peterson would corroborate this. I mean, uh, just saying. Right. I do have one more question about LARPing? Are you following sort of a standard? You are following some, somewhat of a standardized LARP model. Then I've not really worked in LARP community at all until this project, and then this LARP designer Nina Runa Essendrop came in, and she helped build the mechanics with me. So there was a lot of stuff in there. And who is she? What's her background? She does these sort of abstract LARPs. She's very much deeply embedded within the Nordic LARP mm. scene. We're presenting at Knuckpunkt, which is this sort of yearly festival uh -huh. for LARP with this project. And it'll be, I think there are, there's some strange thing. It's not normal for LARP, this thing. So uh, it's going to be an interesting conversation. Uh -huh. What is normal for LARP? Yeah. <laughs> Good. I mean, <laughs> The the Nordic tradition is <laughs> the Nordic tradition. Wait, is, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it LARPing? Is it was it originated in in Nordic countries? Um, so I think that it, I mean there are lots of places that it, it sort of comes from. Like LARPing goes back to like seventies, eighties. I mean, earlier, it goes back or, maybe even further. Yeah. To, like uh, maybe even a hundred something years ago. But okay. this was just role play convention, and you have lots of stuff for acting theory coming in. But really, Dungeons and Dragons in yeah. America was yeah. the, that's LARP. Okay. That's the beginning point. And so our most started... no, wait, so our most normal LARPs are like fantasy themed, etc. Exactly. So okay. most LARPs are battles, historic enactments, and they're like you know. There are, there are mechanics for, for fighting, killing, and potions and things like this. But Nordic LARP, which is sort of the tradition that I'm sort of taking from, is much more sort of a psychological, personal, and social investigation. Well, maybe in Nordic countries they do this. I mean, could you imagine, though, like sort of these situations being exported maybe towards like having exercises with like prisoners, say, or like, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe th certain groups of people who could benefit from these exercises in the empathy and woe It does sound like a, like a Nordic um, prison kind of thing that yeah, you'd be right, spending that LARPing. Maybe, yeah. does, wait, does it happen or? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so, uh, no, well, so, so actually, I don't know. So there the are a lot of role players used within the educational and, and, and other systems within the Nordic countries, for sure. Um, a lot of actually what we did in Seoul came um, from the Circle Foundation when they work in prisons um, and they, they sort of, they didn't use role play as much, but they use other techniques which are sort of similar, perhaps, uh, to talk through people's personal traumas and, and to sort of have, make people sort of have a cathartic, physical reaction to the past. I was thinking maybe we could talk about the NPC meme a little bit because that seems to oh, be fitting very much with Yeah, LARPs. true. First, I mean, NPC stands for non-player character. It was originally a role-playing game term, like video game role-playing games when like a villager you would go up and talk to and they, they weren't, there wasn't an actual player behind them. They were just run by the AI, by the computer and they didn't do And you interact anything. with them in like very superficial ways right. and you have to. You're like, you have to, but, um, and it's like, sometimes really annoying and they, they repeat themselves or whatever. Okay, but okay, there's one tweet they're that bots. I just they're well, okay. And so of course like they're the answer to the like the sort of resistance left or like I don't want to call them the left, the resistance Twitter um calling everything that they don't like Russian bots or any kind of like so it's very much the 
the alt-right version of that. There is this guy, Venkatesh Rao, who I follow on Twitter. He's like a really smart dude. He wrote this thing. It said, the use of NPC as a slur is either deeply ironic or deeply prophetic, depending on whether you think gaming in the future is going to be an OS for civilization or continue as a place <laughs> to park inconsequential humans in a place of relative psychological stability. So yeah, it's pretty dark. Um, I mean, personally, I'm just like, it's both, obviously, yeah, right. for better or worse. Right. Uh, worse, sorry. So yeah, but I don't know. I think that's like an interesting jumping off point. I don't know <laughs> if anyone has any want to riff on NPCs. I mean, okay. That, that tweet was was very efficient. I mean, I think that's really good. Because like, yeah, like, my yeah. reading would be way more superficial. Yeah, sure. No, yeah. I mean, I always had a lot more superficial, and then I read, and I was like, oh wow, this is this is deep. Right, um, as we said, like on the like when we're speaking with Joshua, like also it seems like it is the perfectly, it is a telling meme for our time. It's a very efficient meme for our time when everything is individuated. One sees oneself within one's bubble, and so everyone who's irrelevant. I mean becomes an NPC. Okay, he actually has another good tweet, so maybe we should just... Okay. Ask him to be on the podcast. <laughs> I mean, well, that'd be great. He's a, <laughs> NPC is a rare insult meme that has interesting philosophical depth and practical value. The intuitive but confused linking of outer NPC-hood and inner P-zombie-hood reveals the same kind of logical misstep that leads to strong AI not grokking the hard problem of consciousness. I, I, was, I would refer to certain people as NPCs even before this meme came along just because I thought it was a good way to describe somebody who sort of just acts without thinking. I mean, it kind of describes, though, how most of this sort of uh, neo-tribalism is formed today. I mean, there's people who sort of set the agenda of the tribe, and then there's sort of just NPCs who subscribe and follow that party line and you see it a lot and i i mean i always actually I, I could never quite figure out myself you know who sets the rules like who 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 made the the codes of today's new sensitivities for I mean, instance those things are emerging the, i think they're based right. off of the ra you know the same type of radicalization attention economy things that we always talk about on the show and like what you were mentioning before chan i mean it's just like a direct result of that i don't think there's leaders but any right. everyone is constantly has within their own tribe like they only you only get some sort of credit for pushing it towards that level and and never to disagree with the tribe there's no social incentive for doing that in this sort of increasingly tribal social media thing so i think that just like that just so like a it, radicalization it, it emerges from the player characters and then the npcs simply bolt you are really mirroring it. the exact like current definition of it which is just like mindless liberals yeah i mean i think it did mean something else before and it was like a really fun thing to call people you had to interact with but i always felt like i mean yeah i, I mean i think it's really interesting how much of a reaction it has garnered for being dehumanizing and like npc accounts like as opposed to griper accounts on twitter a lot of them are got shut down immediately and it's just it's kind of weird actually how much of a backlash it got. i mean which i think is also again then that's why the alt-right pushed it further because it was like, oh my God, I can't believe we're managing to troll you people with this I mean, super like a harmless scene. It's like a successful virus. It has to operate on like the, you know, just the yeah, precipice of, right, it can't yeah. quite be lethal. Otherwise it will kill all of its hosts and then it doesn't go any further. Right. So, But also everybody believes they're not an NPC. Well, of course. Right. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's always, rel always relative. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of, it's almost like the word hipster or something always applies to somebody else. And therefore, like, that's why it can sort of proliferate. Yeah. 
For sure. But it's also sort of like a necessary thing just to navigate. I mean, the human population is massive. The the communities that we have to interface with have sprawled. I mean, it's like just sort of a necessary way of organizing the world. Well, especially when we live in like such a solipsistic kind of lifestyle. Right, exactly. It's just kind of a natural, like it's intuitive to think that way at this point. It's not even like thought of necessarily as a pejorative. I mean, it is in a way, but it's also just a way of coping. Right. Right. I mean, to the super rich, aren't we all NPCs anyways? Yes. Yeah, yeah I mean, when we were, depending on what scale you operate on. Yeah, you know? I mean, I think it really did mean, like, I mean, this is super classist, but it's like service people that you have to interact with right. or, like, authority figures that you have to interact with, bureaucrats and uh-huh. these kind of things. And so, like, okay, those people obviously have rich inner lives, I'm sure, but, like, as far as how you interact with the world, yeah, they're like NPCs in a game. So, I mean, that, that I feel like there was some resonance there that wasn't, like explicitly political yet and like it was a big shift well it's also like a carry it's also like a play of power like when we first got here we stayed at a place that was very high on a hill and you looked over and basically you were almost eye level with the acropolis and you're like oh the people in the valley like you know and they sort of became monotone right it was like one monotone area but that is always like when you have a valence of power you know those beneath you become well, ants. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah. I, I went to Liechtenstein like years ago to do this TEDx thing, and uh, yeah, the the prince of Liechtenstein still just lives on the. T- I mean, Liechtenstein is just the side of a mountain, and he lives on the top of the mountain there still, you and you're not allowed to go. There's right. like a sign saying the you can't. The king lives here, or the prince. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. I mean, sure. No, it's like a. It's a. He must classic. be very bored and very lonely. <laughs> yeah, just living alone on the top. Of the Larping. There's a funicular maybe that right. you can ride up and down. <laughs> classic power. But to be able to claim some people are NPCs means you have a certain valence. Of visibility like down on you know it's a certain power in a sense sure yeah and also just the practical dehumanizing aspect of capitalism i think yes precisely yes well (laughs) so i'm actually planning like a uh, conference in march around how effective strategies against the alt-right in london and we're gonna there'll be like some think tanks who work on anti-radicalization strategies and trying to get some other thinkers and people and and particularly tying it to identity but i mean uh is this the first time you've been to athens uh, it, sorry, yeah. that how, do you, how do you like Athens? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I love the father. I love the Greek salads. The, uh, no, um, yeah, so this is the first time it's Athens. Drove here was a very good adventure. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. Cool. Adventure All of Europe. Yeah, I think uh, it, it was. It was fantastic. And I think it I, I maybe move production here. We'll see. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it seems like a kind of a like the perfect dystopia right now for a digital nomad to occupy that's true yeah it's like not quite dystopian it's like more it's pretty dystopian i mean one thing i love is that the acropolis itself of course is this like you know broken structure which if you've gone and you've gone to the museum there's this great video that shows you and i've said this a million times to you guys but that shows okay the acropolis was a greek temple to greek gods it was also a christian church it was also a mosque it was it was occupied by all these different people it was a weapons depot it was a weapons exact <laughs> yeah. an arsenal it was bombed right and it was only it was a reconstruction i think in the 18th century i should check my facts but um by like uh, european thinkers who were able to take the grand tour and were like yes this is the seat of european enlightenment i think it's white and beautiful this is right. obviously our heritage now very interesting the china owns 
the port right. of Athens, Piraeus, right? That yeah, it's owned. there really beachhead into the EU for sure. It, it yeah. totally is, right? Meanwhile, I hear that Russia is trying to reclaim some of the Byzantine churches as their like, you know, traditional home because that's the seat of Byzantium. Right, but there's a schism now between the the Greek Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox Church. Right. right. That's our, yeah, which is like for you know, it's like a very like once in five hundred year kind of <laughs> like thing. I pr- I have to do more research on this. But I don't know what right. I don't know what they're schisming over. But they're putting their but. talons into some of the some of the churches to say these are actually ours, they're actually Russian. Therefore, we're going to sort of unofficially own these areas. But it's fascinating now walking through Athens, um, where you see okay, these are basically stores that are shipping containers from like Shenzhen or from wherever, yeah. right? So if you want to understand how Europe actually works or how the world actually works. Athens is a fascinating place and it's in its brokenness. It's in it's in these gaps where this this story is plainly visible. Unlike in Germany where everything's controlled, you can't send vitamins through there like Zoloft. Sure. I mean it's you know, a demonstration through failure of like yes. what the very central flaws to the EU and yes, like what, yes. how that's structured. In, in plain view. And without having a federal system. Yeah. I have one more question for Ed actually. I wanted to ask about the I mean you saying that we could Le- like men in the left kind of need to be given a a better option uh, for I guess a position for them to occupy. Could you expand on that? Um, so before I went into work on cell, like a lot of the things I was doing was organizing um, conversation groups um, and reading groups around this sort of subject matter and trying to invite a very diverse bunch of people into those conversations. And there is a lot of kickback about the idea of male identity in general. And it is a structural problem. Like as you said, that if you if we don't deal with this, it just causes sort of reactionary kickback. To me, the only way forward is really to try to develop models where men are more in touch with an emotional register and to try and think of ways of developing that language because it's not one that's given to us as children. In fact, the opposite is is perhaps true. Um, I'm very interested in like Betty Friedman, who's um, a first wave feminist and she's fantastic. And she writes about sort of the violence done to women in the 1950s when they're sort of told that the expectations of having a child and having a family are the things that will somehow complete them. And when that lived reality doesn't match those things, um, a kind of a, a real, very real violence is caused. And I think the same can be said for men in the current state. So I think the first thing is to sort of acknowledge it and then the, the second thing is to try and perform ourselves differently fascinating we, we think about women i mean as a girl you're told you know from the time you're three that you can dress up right and you're allowed to do that the rest of your life you have multiple selves you put on lipstick you don't you dress up for sports you dress up for going out guys can't guys are supposed to just be the way they are all the time they don't have this fantasy space which is maybe a reason why more men participate in larping than women do maybe i mean i don't know but that's such an interesting idea that men are kind of stuck in a like a 1950s of the male identity where women have had this time to push against that and men have not yeah and i, and I feel that um especially the expression of emotions is, is something that really is uh is not taught to us in fact you know have very clear memories of being a kid where you're you're told that that is not an okay thing to do. I mean, just look at the characters in films and, and television. Like the, the the emotional registers of those people is is minuscule. It's like mm-hmm. it's in the negative. Mm-hmm. So there are very few models or examples to sort of cling on to. And I think maybe the, one of the first points is to start developing those things. But this is you know it's, it's a long way to to go. Yeah. Speaking of 
male dominated broken models. We haven't really talked about crypto. And um, yeah, I'm just wondering like actually, well, how do you use crypto in your, in your work? So it's, it's quite simple. So the, very, the, the basic idea is that it's a means of fundraising for my studio. So we sell this hybrid thing that's somewhere between an artist print and a, a financial vehicle. Is it an ERC721? Is, is it a token? Is it an, yeah, it's an a NFT? Token. Yeah, yeah. So it was, it was, it was uh, kind of inspired through like Brad's uh, work where he had a... Um, Brad Trammell. Brad Trammell, yeah. And one of his works where he had a vac uh, Bitcoin vacuum packed into a, a sort of sculpture. And the Bitcoin, I think it was 10, 10 Bitcoin or yeah. something. I mean, and you did several of those, but yeah. You tweeted it out, yeah. It was worth like 700,000 at one point. It was, I mean, well, it was worth, I mean, when it was like uh, 1.8 million, when uh, like, a, like a few weeks after I tweeted that, it was worth 1.8 million at the peak. Yeah, something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I also was like, did he really not keep any of those pieces? Because <laughs> he's still like, he's hustling on Patreon. Like he did not keep any of those pieces. He says he doesn't. Yeah, he wouldn't, right? I don't know, maybe. I don't know. But it, so basically, I was like kind of interested in that. So the surface of the of the certificate itself, there's a scratch panel, and you can scratch off this panel, and you can get your your key to access funds. And these funds are made from the sales of the certificates themselves and sculptural works that the studio makes. So as the fund grows, and as like maybe Ethereum goes up in value, um, you're sort of faced with this question of when to cash out, if ever at all. So it's a pyramid scheme <laughs> um, like the rest of art world well so. yeah i mean it's it's trying to distill speculation into one site as it were like it just the idea that i can fundraise for instance or use this as a visible way of fundraising to produce work i mean i make role plays like they don't make money so this is a, a way of funding and it's just a different model the studio can work towards and it takes away a lot of risk you know the galleries faced with the risk every time i i produce works they have to raise money and um, I, we rely on like such a small amount of collectors to survive. And so this is a way of expanding that support network. But okay, so functionally, um, are you choosing not to use Kickstarter or any of these centralized platforms like ideologically or why, why blockchain actually? Why is that necessary? It's just a very convenient mechanism to do it, like to embed something into an art sprint. And then you have the two hypes of, you know, like, art speculation and Ethereum speculation that can be, the narrative of that can be very easily sewn together. Without the bad interface of Kickstarter. Surfing, <laughs> surfing those waves <laughs> or something, yeah. And ironically, I, I think it's probably the worst time to release it because um, Ethereum is, and well, the, the crypto scene is, is in the doldrums Right, as well. I mean, this is why I said broken models because right. um, I think that a lot of artists, yeah, a lot of artists who were engaging in blockchain a few years ago could plausibly be doing it in a way that's sort of like utopian speculation or like, oh, maybe, maybe this. And now it's like, as it's been kind of demonstrated, well, not at scale, and that's sort of the issue. It can't be demonstrated at scale, but this attempt at demonstrating at scale with huge, insane capitalizations, and there's still no users of any Ethereum application. And so in a way, like it, it kind of retreating back into artists kind of messing around with it, that's what it is, actually. So might as well do that with, you know, less budget and like right. that's much better use of it actually right i mean it's also just very practical it is just a, a way of delivering a fund like that's sure i mean that is this is also again like uh, of all the hype of 2017 was icos of you know very far-fetched apps basically decentralized apps and now this year it's you know stable coins which is literally the most boring iteration possibly of crypto just tokens that are one-to-one -one pegged by the dollar and are backed by banks and auditors um it's yeah so i mean i do think that like we've kind of 
retreated back into, oh wait, this is actually just a financial instrument. This isn't necessarily a way of organizing the world. And like decentralization is not just inherently a good thing. Right. You know, it can be As used. you say, decentralization. Oh, my famous uh, aphorism. Decentralization didn't work for atoms and it sure as hell won't work for anything bigger. <laughs> right. Um, cooperation is great. Um, but of course these projects are cooperative and there are open source pro I mean, they are like, it's not this like completely a paranoid space like I sometimes say. I mean, it is like a largely cooperative and like the open source soft, the fact that it is all being developed without necessarily, you know, not with at least the support of Google or these kind of stacks. That is, that is innovative. I mean, nothing was going to be able to gestate under the pressure of last December. Sure. Like, it just wasn't possible, right? right? So you need that, like, space that you can squat in order for anything actually innovative to happen. Right. So I know, and, like, what it's good it's, at is, yeah. like, quick, relatively exactly. cheap transactions for a lot of money. Um, yeah. That's the only reason I've ever used it. Yeah. Well, Legally, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the most interesting effects, I think, is what you've touched upon, is what happens when you have new multi-millionaires who have come from strange ideological backgrounds who um, are now faced with a lot of possibilities and what the hell are they going to do with that? Right. Okay, is there anything else you're super excited about for either Athens or the BNLA in the coming weeks? Yeah, or in your life in general. What's your coming up next? Plugs, um, plugs. plugs. And remember, young men, it's okay to strive and grow into philosopher king Wojax. <laughs> <laughs> Avoid soy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks for... Um, Thank you. Big thank you to Ed Fornielis for joining us on the eighth episode of the New Models podcast recorded in Athens during the Athens Biennale, also known as Anti. This cast, we wanted to shout out some of the people who have been contributing some of our favorite links. Shout out Darren Kong for some excellent Mike Davis links. Our hearts go out to everyone in California, and these Mike Davis pieces gave us some good perspective on how to think through this uh, latest crisis. Shout out to Stephen Warwick, always great with the pop culture flow. Stephanie Wakefield for some good Anthropocene information. Edward Lawrence on the fashion tip. Matt Dryhurst, always remediating you. William Smith uh, from Art in America for fixing a big typo on our page. Thank you for that. Billy Renekamp taking us through the blockchain crash. And as always, Joshua Citarella, uh, especially for your TikTok coverage. That was epic. Thank you so much. I want to give a shout out to Patreon.com. <laughs> new models. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Patreon. So send us links to desk at newmodels.io. And if they make it to the page, we'll shout you out too. We'll see you here next time. Next episode. Next episode. So cheer. Ha <laughs> <laughs>